This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, thank you, Laura, for that very kind uh, and generous uh, introduction. Uh, thank you all for coming today, and uh, also thank uh, my colleagues in the department for nominating me uh, for this uh, for this honor, and the uh, committee of the academic senate for uh, for selecting me. Um, the purpose of my uh, talk today uh, is to, in a sense, address the issue of the way in which we've often thought of the the local, uh, the national. And the, uh, and the global in particular, uh, other and other scales as well in between, are somehow completely independent of one another, with the local understood really as isolated local places, rather than in terms of the, the bringing together or the coming together of influences uh, across these different geographic scales. And I think this reflects, and this is what the first slide uh, purports to, to show, our tendency historically, especially since the 18th century and the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, to think of, uh, of space in terms of time. So we, in space we read time, says the distinguished German historian Karl Schlogel, um, in which uh, the local was, it's kind of what we used to be like. We lived uh, separated out in very localized uh, communities. Uh, the national is, that's kind of been the dominant uh, frame over the last 150 or 200 years. And then more recently, we have this notion of the global uh, as becoming. And so we have this kind of what I call a sort of spatial teleology in which these three uh, scales remain uh, separate from one another. But in fact, uh, most of my research uh, over the last 40 years has been devoted, as uh, numerous other people as well, uh, to try to show how these work together rather than seeing them as separate from one another. Uh, more recently, my research has been concerned with, if you like, the high end of these scales, the, the relationship between uh, the national and the global, uh, particularly in a book I published in 2009 called uh, uh, Globalization and Sovereignty, which was really all about the uh, connections between the global and the national. But today what I want to talk about is, if you like, at the other end of the scale, it's this, uh, of these different scales, uh, it's the way in which the local, in fact, brings together influences from all the other scales as well. Uh, and this is where I want to use the term place. The place isn't just this notion of isolated uh, local areas, uh, but in a sense it's where a whole variety of influences come together uh, through the everyday life experiences uh, of different people. So the local, if you like, is the basic setting, but the national and the, uh, and the global, in a sense, work together through this scale uh, to create the uh, in-betweenness of what I call, anyway, the in-betweenness of place, borrowing that from one of my colleagues uh, who is here today, uh, Nick Entrican. Uh, there are a lot of other people who've engaged in this task of, of questioning this, this self-evident notion that the local, the national, and the global are all somehow separate from one another, and, and over time one replaces the other. I would just mention a few, a few names from a range of fields, Charles Meyer and Prasenjit Duara from, from history, 
And from my own field, people like Doreen Massey, uh, Eric Shepard, uh, Alan Scott, Helga Leitner, who uh, I think are, are, all, are all here today and are, are now my colleagues. So the, the point here is to situate the local rather than to isolate it, to think of local in relation to these other scales rather than to see it as separate. So the word place then represents a kind of in-betweenness. The local suspended with its own content, so to speak, between the distant and the near, rather than to a, a world unto itself as we conventionally think of places as completely local. And I'm going to be using examples from electoral politics, particularly uh, in Italy uh, today, uh, and in relation to the influence of modern media, particularly mass communications like television and social media associated uh, with the internet, to try and make the argument that place uh, still matters in terms of our understanding of politics. And in as I said, in particular elect electoral politics. But other kinds of politics, other, other sorts of phenomena can also be thought about in this way of a, of a bringing together or a coming together rather than our insistence, <clears throat> which is reflected in a way even in the intellectual division of labor in the social sciences between the local, the global, uh, the local, the national, and the global, with some fields devoting themselves at least historically to the local, like anthropology, uh, the national uh, uh, economics, political science perhaps, and then the global uh, now being uh, the, the field of uh, uh, international relations and, and the study of world politics, as if these existed ontologically uh, in, in separate realms. Um, perhaps to kind of remind ourselves, maybe we don't want to remind ourselves of what's happened recently in American politics, uh, particularly at the, at the presidential level. Uh, several really interesting books have appeared over the last year, um, really talking in a vein very similar to the one that I was just uh, uh, addressing. One of these is a book by the sociologist Kathy Kramer from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, where political issues in her uh, account are framed through the lens of everyday spatially constrained experiences that many people... Uh, unlike many of us who spend a lot of time in airports and so on, you know, a huge chunk of the, of the population doesn't. They live very, very uh, spatially routinized uh, uh, and, uh, and very fixed kinds of uh, everyday lives. And this is where they make their political choices. And she argues, yes, there are influences from outside. They watch different television channels. They may watch Fox News or they may watch uh, one of the networks or, or, or whatever, but these, these messages that they get are all filtered through their own particular uh, experience. What she was particularly interested in was the, uh, the uh, experience in Wisconsin of the recall vote and, and later re-election of Scott Walker as governor of Wisconsin, but it has wider lessons beyond that. Uh, in terms of what she tries to trace is the development of what she calls the politics of resentment, particularly in rural and small-town Wisconsin. And what she shows is a, is a, is a resentment towards urban areas toward, and towards particularly state bureaucracy and towards public sector unions who are seen as, in a sense, uh, getting resources uh, that the rural areas and the small towns do not. And, of course, she herself was a target of a lot of this criticism for actually being a professor at the University of, of, of Wisconsin. So, so let's kind of move on to uh, uh, 
to talk about the, the general election, the, the presidential election. And this is a, this is a map. I, I don't want to spend too long on it. We could spend the entire uh, afternoon on this. This is one of my problems. Um, so before I get into the lecture proper, I just wanted to use uh, something that maybe is a bit more familiar before I start talking about Italy. Uh, here's a familiar question that we've uh, had recently that's, in a sense, defamiliarized. This is not a map of who won where. This is not a map of who won, uh, where Trump won uh, and, and Clinton lost, or where Clinton won and, and, and Trump lost. I just would want to make really three, three points about this. It's a, it's a map of, of, of vote margins by congressional district. And it does not use any kind of national average uh, to, 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 from which then everywhere else is seen as a deviation. The idea is that these, these places have their own particular kinds of experiences using it. You know, not the best possible unit of analysis, but at least one that's uh, useful for present purposes, the congressional district. And so what we see on here are, are in the red areas are the ones where Trump did significantly better than Mitt Romney in 2012 within the borders of those particular congressional districts. And the blue ones are where Hillary Clinton did very well compared uh, to Barack Obama uh, in 2012. His vote in 2012 was down quite significantly in many places over 2008. So you can see here this, this interesting map. It's at the level of congressional districts between 2012 and 2016, and it doesn't rely on any kind of national average. And why, why does this matter? Well, using the national average always implies that there's a national norm and the, other pla the places are always deviations away from that norm. Uh, and so the, the dispersion, in a sense, then becomes the secondary question to what is the national average. Well, the national average in this case is that um, Trump got 1.8% more of the vote, total vote across the country, than did Mitt Romney. Uh, in 2012, but that doesn't tell us much of anything, does it? When you look at this map, you can see how in eastern Ohio, uh, a certain part of rural upstate New York, some parts of Minnesota, uh, Trump did enormously better, more than 30% better than did Mitt Romney in 2012. And then interestingly, although secondarily for present purposes, this strange map of where Hillary Clinton did so well. I mean, I mean you don't need... Um, a degree in political geography to figure out that uh, Utah, uh, parts of Arizona and, and Idaho uh, showed a real swing uh, in favor of Hillary Clinton over Barack Obama simply because the Mormon vote in those regions, uh, in those places was turning away uh, from, from Trump, even though she lost in all of those states. The point here is that there's a dynamic to the political process expressed through the different character of different places. And that brings me to my, my third point. Uh, Trump appealed directly to voters in certain types of places. There's absolutely no doubt about that with his economic nationalist and you've been left behind themes. And he suffered for this in places on the West Coast and in most metropolitan areas where people, uh, in a sense, don't have these sort of where these kinds of appeals didn't have the kind of resonance that they did, say, in eastern Ohio or, or other parts of the Midwest. 
And so there are different demographies, but also different economies spread across the country. And people's political uh, choices then are all going to be, in a sense, filtered or through or conditioned by these different experiences. But it's not just about differences. For example, it's quite clear that Trump kept many suburban Republicans on board in the Northeast and in the Midwest, even as he emphasized appealing to Southern evangelicals and disaffected workers in the Midwest. And so what we had was, a, in a sense, a mix of strategies of people who identified with the Republican Party, and even if they were holding their noses, they still went and voted for him. Uh, identity voters, particularly people drawn to some of his um, invective about racial minorities and so on, and also exchange voting, the attraction particularly of voters in the Midwest to the idea that he was going to go off and do something for them, that he was going to bring jobs back that somehow had gone somewhere else. So this map then is a way, in a sense, of introducing us to the, to the themes uh, that I want to address today, that places, in a sense, are the, are the settings in which political choices are still, are still predominantly made, even in the face of important national and global pressures. Um, so globalization in this, in this case is something that seems to have benefited metropolitan areas, but not so much the uh, industrial uh, or former industrial areas uh, of, of the American Midwest. So in a way, this is the kind of, this is a, a, a statistician's joke. I hope there's, there are no statisticians in the room. It's not, it's not directed at statisticians so much. It says a biologist, a chemist, and a statistician are out hunting. The biologist shoots at a deer and misses five feet to the left. The chemist takes a shot and misses five feet to the right. The statistician yells, we got them. I mean, this kind of conveys a little bit, I think, the sense that I'm trying to make that we need to look at places in their own right, even though there are all kinds of causal factors that are coming together in, the, in those places, to produce sameness and difference across a range of places, rather than always seeing everything as deviations from some kind of national norm or, or, or standard. What I want to do uh, today, as quickly as I can, is talk a little bit about why have we thought of politics as somehow nationalizing? Why have we thought of it as being beyond place in the sense that I've tried to describe it, beyond the intersection between the local, the national, and the global? Then I want to talk a little, a little bit about television, social media, and politics in Italy, uh, thinking with places and in Italy, the history of thinking this way, and, and in particular in relation to Italy, and then finally, the final part of the uh, lecture, mapping Italian electoral politics over the last uh, 30 years or so. Uh, and this is particularly interesting because in Italy you have people who have had national, in a sense, national media campaigns. Berlusconi, the TV baron, the guy who uh, owned the private television networks and when he was prime minister of Italy also controlled several of the public television uh, channels. And then more recently, the growth of a movement that's organized over the internet uh, by the comedian uh, Beppe Grillo, uh, a populist uh, movement using the internet. So, so here there's a kind of, in a way, a hard, a hard test for this idea uh, that we don't live in a world that's, that's just nationalized. You know, whether, wherever you are within a particular country or, 
or uh, it, it doesn't matter, uh, that, that in a sense, uh, the place still, still matters. And then briefly, a, a few conclusions. Um, the nationalization of politics was a very prominent theme in political sociology and in, and, in, and in political geography in the 1960s and 1970s. It was the idea that no, local and regional uh, contexts or settings no longer matter because it, they've been transcended by the national and, the, and more recently in some accounts by the global in the causes of all types of politics, whether it's voting, protesting, uh, striking, and so on. Um, and this was judged as happening through looking at the national homogenization of electoral results. Um, and the idea was that national issues now were more important than local ones, and in a sense, people were more or less indifferent on, on this uh, geographically. Uh, national communication patterns, national campaigns, high rates of internal migration, but in particular, and this is the most uh, significant thing, the rise of functional particularly social class, racial, ethnic identities um, as cleavages over the geographical ones. So territorial or geographical cleavages were seen as passe. Um, in actual fact, though, homogenization in this sense actually peaked in most countries in the 1970s. Uh, all over Western Europe and in the United States and in Canada, uh, since the 1970s, in fact, you've had a, a localization or fragmentation of, of, uh, of electoral uh, returns. And even so, national homogenization could be produced by different processes, different causes in a sense, working differently uh, within different places. So there was, it was always a kind of unsatisfactory kind of logic that because you saw a pattern um, on a map and increase, increasingly equal shares of votes for different parties across the country, that somehow that was being produced by essentially the same processes and these processes were all uh, national ones. So my point today is, a, is largely what I would call a meta-theoretical or methodological one about how to frame political agency. How do people come to make the political choices that they do? Um, and, and then we can in fact address various kinds of theories that we might have about the importance of social class or generational shifts. That's something that my colleague Michael Shin and I have been looking at in Italy. Um, are the differences between political generations when people come to political maturity in terms of how they make their political choices in different places. Uh, or material interests or cultural identities. How important are racial identities in different places? What does it mean to have a certain kind of racial identity uh, when you live in, 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 uh, in different places? But many people have said, oh, this is all very well, but we can, we can in a sense, argue these things away. Um, places, not really, you know. Uh, really, it's an artifact of geographical units. Um, so if we just get down to, to the level of individuals and do sort of like psychographs of them, then, you know, no problem. Um, where people live really doesn't matter. It's really just a function of aggregating isolated individuals. Um, rather than the important assumption which Kathy Kramer makes, remember uh, the book I referred to earlier, where people are social beings, and they're social beings at least in part through the everyday lives that they live in particular places. And I think that's uh, an argument against this kind of thing. Then other people say, and this is a cartogram of the United States showing, in a sense, distorting uh, different 
parts of the country in terms of uh, population density. Uh, so this is an urban-rural map, mainly. This is the red state, blue state thing. Uh, on a, on a, a cartogram, it's really all about just urban versus rural. And there is an element of that, obviously, here in terms of, uh, for example, the two major American political parties. Another argument is that, in fact, people just sort themselves out demographically. You know, that's become an increasingly popular argument. The, the big sort was the title of a book uh, 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 published a couple of years ago. But in actual fact, Americans, and, and we'll see in a minute, Italians have become uh, actually increasingly immobile. I mean, this shows the average, uh, so, <clears throat> sorry, the medium distance of children's to their children to their mother's home across the United States. Look at this. I mean, in certain, certain parts of the eastern United States, the average offspring lives eight miles away from their mother. I mean, it gets a bit bigger when you move west here. You know, like <clears throat> 44 miles in the mountains and 26 miles on the, on, the, on the west coast. But the point here is that, in fact, we often again have a kind of mythology about how mobile everybody is. You know, everyone's moving around. Well, yeah, some people are. This is the median. Um, but a lot of people are staying very close to home. Partly that's because in the United States, like in Italy, people are not moving out of their home. They're, they're living with their parents. Vast numbers of people, nearly a third of Italians now live with their parents, uh, according to new research uh, in, uh, in, in Italy. So among the 18 to 29-year-old age bracket in Italy, the proportion rises to a staggering 61% of people from 18 to 29 are living at home. Of those who do not live at home, 42% reside within a 30-minute walk of their parents. So again, people are not really sorting themselves out demographically. That doesn't really explain, for example, the increasing polarization of voting that you see uh, in, in the United States, that you know, people are sort of sniffing out whether their neighbors are Republican or Democrat or something like that. I don't think that figures... Uh, very high on, on the category of things you're looking for, is it, when you go to a certain neighborhood? Maybe it happens, maybe it comes about as a result of other things, like how much money you've got to buy a house, uh, but it's not certainly the thing that's driving the process. Anyway, some people would say, I, I stole this from George Takei, who always posts very funny things on, uh, on Facebook, um, here we have Don Quixote, you know, uh, no Don Quixotes allowed here anywhere near this windmill, you know. Um, so some people say, well, this is like, you know, you're trying to drag us back into the, you know, like the 16th century here or, or something. Um, no, I mean, I don't think this is just a quixotic pursuit. Really what we're trying to do is question the idea in a sense that we live in a sense, in a world that's either at one scale or another, that somehow we can account for social and political and economic processes that way. In, in Italy, uh, this has become a very common refrain. Uh, have mass communications, particularly such as television and the internet, undermined the role of places as social context in which politics is grounded. So, you know, is there a, a post-place politics? Uh, Daniele Zolo, for example, who's a uh, expert in communications, says not only is political communication almost totally absorbed by television, 
but so is the whole process of the legitimization of politicians, of the production of consensus and of the definition and negotiation of the issues that have no other location and, so to speak, no other symbolic places except television studios and popular entertainment programs to which the stars of the political firmament are invited. This is a, you know, an extreme version of a kind of, it doesn't matter where, where you are. But does it? Well, Italian media sources, I mean, suggest that uh, when we look at them closely, uh, that this is hyperbolic, that this is completely overstated. Television news is still very important in Italy. I apologize for the quality of this graphic. The top one shows a declining in, uh, uh, decline uh, in 2013. This is from the Italian election survey of 2013. The declining proportion of people relying on television news uh, for their news, even though it vastly, that's the top uh, one here. Get this thing to work. This one here. This is uh, newspapers, and this is the internet. So the internet's become more important, but it's still really minuscule compared to TV and, and newspapers. But nevertheless, even the, even the TV has begun uh, to go down. And the internet and social media really have only arrived since the early 2000s. Mobile telephone use is very extensive in, in Italy, but other technologies and apps less so. If we look at the penetration of the internet uh, in Italy, the total population is somewhere about 61.5 million people. About 35.5 million people have access to the internet. About uh, a 58% uh, internet penetration. Uh, act 26 million active Facebook users. Uh, but you know, a huge number of active mobile <laughs> subscriptions, far more than the population, includes a lot of people with throwaway uh, 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 phones in certain parts of the country. Um, so we can see here very uneven penetration of the, of, of the Internet. Younger generations much more wired in, of course, not surprisingly. Uh, internet penetration in, Europe, in Italy compared, this is Italy here, compared to the rest of of, of, of Europe. I mean, so, so not a high rate, say, compared to Iceland here, where just about everyone and everyone's household pets and everyone are all on the internet. Uh, Italy here, much, much lower. Uh, more like Eastern Europe, actually, uh, than the rest of Western Europe. Um, and amongst younger, younger people, this is another way of expressing the numbers connected to the internet. In fact, uh, in Italy, connections, this is the most recent that I could find uh, from uh, last January, uh, very similar to Morocco, actually. So Italy's actually not that well connected. But in fact, it's within Italy that the big divisions occur. So here is the regional geography of the Internet in Italy. If you look at the top here, this is, uh, this, these, are the, these are the regions that are least connected. Uh, so they, they're overwhelming in southern Italy, Puglia, Basilicata, Campania, uh, Sicily, Calabria here. So southern Italy up here, least connected. Uh, the highest connected uh, German-speaking Bolzano in the north, Trento, Lombardia around Milan, um, uh, other parts of northern Italy, Lazio around Rome, and, and, and so on. So really uneven uh, development, in a sense, of the, of the Internet um, in, uh, in Italy. Uh, just to give you... Uh, a sense. This is a survey done by a, a colleague 
of teenagers in one town in Puglia in southeastern Italy um, of active and non-active users. You can see here Facebook overwhelmingly the most important, followed by WhatsApp, uh, but not much of the other. Twitter really a very limited uh, penetration, uh, even amongst teenagers, in southern, at least in southern Italy. Um, so what do so, what social media studies say about all of these, uh, these, uh, these media? Well, television and other news sources tend to reinforce and mobilize voters who already share the perspectives they are absorbing. In Italy, TV news on different channels has been long associated with different political parties. Rai Uno, for many years, was uh, dominated by the Christian Democrats before 1992. Uh, there never was any kind of Italian equivalent of Walter Cronkite, you know, who, who told us, reassured us that that's the way it is. Remember those days before there was um, uh, a range of different, of alternative news? I think that's the word that's, or alternative, uh, news based on alternative facts. I think that's the, the phrase to use. So no, there was never a Walter Cronkite. So television in Italy, newspapers in Italy have always been partisan. Uh, that's not news. And it's not news in many countries. It's, it was the United States in many ways that was very unusual in having a kind of uh, uh, te national television news that at least pr uh, uh, pretended <laughs> to be objective and somehow beyond, uh, beyond the political fray. Now there are more channels in Italy, but overall low levels of trust in the veracity of news. So the most recent survey that I could find, 35% believe the news that they uh, see is trustworthy, uh, compared to a European average of 53%. So geographic constraints still exercise also a strong influence over social media and telephony. So quite a few studies have shown that social media facilitate flows among existing social networks, people you already know in face-to-face -face situations, which decreases a function of distance. So, um, so quite, and these are interesting findings, and they're not unique to Italy. I mean, the United States, um, Many other countries, there have been a lot of interesting studies done recently on that. So if the media aren't all they're you know, set up to be, that they have perhaps uh, less uh, profound influence over how people form their opinions and make their political choices, maybe we can uh, be, go back to thinking uh, a bit more with places, thinking with places. And, and I think nationalization has been problematic because it rested on the view of places as strictly separate, isolated local communities, which most of them never, never really were. An alternate view is of places as settings in which everyday life experiences intersect with social interaction with others and with organized workplaces, churches, and schools, and so on, that are also linked into wider networks and flows. So rather than adding together national census categories, this involves examining the configurations of influences that produce political action or inaction. For example, class or race takes on different meanings in different places because of the common sense of those places, what, what people have come to expect of those places. And place then isn't just local, but it's relational. Places are dynamic, responding to long distance as well as local changes is from migration, unemployment, and changes in business ownership to shifting religious practices, consumption patterns, and cultural attitudes. And for me, there are really three aspects to place. Location, this is where you are in a, in a wider 
uh, national and global cartographic space, locale, which is everyday and institutional settings for social interaction, and then a sense of place, identification with people in their place, which can be localized, but can also be regional and also be national. And though the rise of television and social media are often seen as major instruments for overwhelming this conception of, of place, places in, and places are seen as residual effects or artifacts of electoral systems or simply demographic clusters of this or that type of people, I would, I would beg to differ. So if we look at Italy, we had a sense of, of really of this kind of complexity of physical location, of the connections between different places in Italy with other places within Italy and beyond the borders of Italy, within the middle here of the, of the Mediterranean. The political institutional history of Italy, the fact that it was unified very late out of these various component parts in the mid-19th century. Uh, the settlement pattern, the fact is that Italy doesn't have a single dominant city like many other European countries do. Uh, Rome and Milan are really uh, equivalent in size. In fact, Milan as a metropolitan area is larger uh, than Rome. There's a definite bias, a metropolitan bias towards northern Italy. In the south, you have these much more scattered uh, centers, uh, Naples, Bari, Palermo, uh, Catania, and so on. Um, there's an uneven economic development in Italy, which has been characteristic of the country again since unification. You can see how heavily concentrated industrial employment in Italy is in northern and central Italy, with just scattered islands, really, of industrial employment in the south. This matters to politics. It matters in terms of how people uh, look at, at, at the world, in terms of their dependence on different kinds of industries, different kinds of employment, or in many parts of southern Italy, no employment or underemployment. Again, practical religiosity. Not the whole, all of Italy is the same. This is a, uh, based on a census of people, you know, telling uh, 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 observers, intervie interviewers, uh, whether they went to mass within the last month. And you can see here, maybe these people in Sicily are lying, I, I, but, but they're... Uh, uh, we have to take some of this stuff with a pinch of, of salt. Uh, nevertheless, you can see here really important regional differences that do reflect, in fact, the history of religiosity in, in, in Italy. Anyone familiar with Italy knows that this is the least religious part, by and large, with a few exceptions, uh, the least religious part of, of Italy for historical reasons relating to the role of the church in landowning and so on. So in the, papal, the former papal states, and in Tuscany, much lower levels of church attendance than in the south or in the northeast, which historically was part of the Austrian Empire. And the priests in the church were the ones who, in a sense, were important figures in, in, in perpetuating a sense of Italianita, of being, of being Italian. Here's the geography of corruption and organized crime in, in, in Italy. I mean, it's, it's not just in the south, but the south has much higher indices of organized crime and, and some of that reflects the earlier map on economic development. Uh, and then finally, sense of paese, sense of place, sense of belonging, uh, important in Italy, uh, different food ways, traditions, even revival of dialect speaking in, in recent years in different parts of the country. So then thinking with places, the goal here is to trace the processes, to examine print theories we might have. As I said before, I have... Uh, 
class and generational theories about what drives people to vote or, or engage in politics in different kinds of ways. Um, and then once you've, un once you've established those processes and got a sense across a range of places of how they operate, that's when you generalize rather than coming up with national averages and, and, and immediately uh, generalizing on that basis. Now, people have been making arguments about place and politics for a long time, but typically they've made them in terms of arguments about uh, the, the, the fixity of, of place or, and the isolation, really, of, of the local. André Siegfried, who was a very important um, French political scientist in the early uh, 20th century, uh, made arguments of this character, and, 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 and in a way they still continue. Robert Putnam's book, for example, Making Democracy Work, uh, which is on Italy, was published in 1994, has this kind of uh, fixed subculture view of regional and local differences in Italy. You know, that southern Italy's been kind of trapped in a, in a time warp for about a thousand years. Um, and and I'm, I don't think that's particularly helpful. Uh, someone else who made really quite persuasive, persuasive arguments that have had really important outcomes in American politics was a guy called Kevin Phillips who worked on Nixon's campaign in 1968 and published this book called The Emerging Republican Majority where he recounts how uh, people who organize political campaigns have an incredibly place-oriented kind of understanding of how politics should work. Um, and, uh, and this book, uh, in many ways, is, has been, if you like, I mean, you could see it as a, a kind of roadmap to what's happened in American politics uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, finally, a historian here, Leif Jiram, uh, whose book here I used in an undergraduate class, argues to, for looking at European history through places rather than through uh, countries. So rather than you know, talking about European history as if it was just sticking together France and Germany and Italy and so on, arguing that um, uh, European politics and European society have actually been made through uh, the streets, so made through the, the livelihoods, particularly of cities in Europe, cities and, and, and important places uh, within those. And then finally, my, my book on, on Italy really tries to argue that places don't just stay the same, that they're, that they're dynamic and that we can't really see them as just fixed for all time as a result of this interplay between the local, the national, and the, and the global. And I've spent most of uh, my field work in Italy, you know, really hardship work, um, in, in, um, in Tuscany, and, and in, yeah, I mean, people come back from, uh, colleagues of mine come back from Africa, you know, with malaria, you know, and, you know, and, and, um, and I, I, I sort of come back with olive oil. Um, and, and so here, these two provinces in particular have uh, been ones I've spent a lot of time in, <laughs> hanging around, um, uh, talking to uh, politicians, uh, local uh, people and so on. So in many ways, my view of Italy is very much sort of through the lens that I've acquired uh, from living there. So let's like cut to the, cut to the chase, to the uh, final part of the, of the lecture, to talk a little bit about mapping Italian electoral politics over the last uh, 30 years or so. As many of you probably know, the old political system in Italy collapsed in 1990-1992, over a two-year period, partly because uh, of a huge corruption scandal involving 
two of the most important political parties, the Christian Democrats and the Socialists, but, but also because of the end of the Cold War. Because in many ways, the Cold War, important global <laughs> happening, went through the middle of Italy. Italy had the biggest communist party by this time, relative to the French Communist Party earlier in the post-war period, uh, and also was seen as like the front line in many ways. Um, and so the co Cold War animosities and so on were a very important part of political, of political life uh, in Italy down until that time. And with the ending of the Cold War, that collapsed. So the Communist Party collapsed also during this period of time, uh, simply because in many ways it had lost, its, uh, uh, lost part of its purpose anyway. Well, what happened then was that a variety of new forms of, of politics came into being. One of the most important ones was the growth of a, national, of a regional party in northern Italy called the Northern League. The other was the emergence of this, uh, the media baron Silvio Berlusconi uh, onto the political stage, creating his own political party, which he named after the cry of, of supporters for the national football team, Forza Italia. I mean, and it had about as much substantive content to it as that. I mean, in the sense of, well, were people choosing some particular policies or not? No, they were choosing Silvio. You know? It was about choosing a particular guy with a particular kind of, of uh, uh, rhetoric, a particular kind of style. And he do really dominated Italian politics between 1994 uh, until 2013. He was in office, as we'll see, for a considerable number of years. Um, I think what's important to stress with him is that he was very capable of putting together a political coalition. He, he himself, Forza Italia, never got more than about 20, 28% of the total vote in Italy. Um, and so he, in order to win, he had to kind of uh, come up with allies. And one was the Northern League, and the other was this Alianza Nazionale, which was, uh, in, in many ways, was the descendant of the fascist party. So really quite far right-wing uh, party in that case. But he was the owner of Mediaset, the only national private TV network, so people thought, well, it's all about TV. You know, people who watch his TV programs, they're the people who are voting for him. Um, well, maybe there's something to that, but the, the evidence suggests that he was actually much better as a, as a political entrepreneur putting together a coalition rather than uh, rather than anything else. So here he is. This is Silvio Berlusconi, Prime Minister of Italy, 1994 5 2001-6, 2008-11. Uh, this is an important photograph. This is the guy who gave him the license to have the private television networks. Uh, uh, Bettino Craxi, this was in 1983. Craxi, of course, was one of the people who was then indicted um, uh, in, in 1990, 1991 for political corruption and then went on the lam, uh, essentially uh, ended up living in Tunisia and then, and then uh, dying in, in, in Tunisia. But part of his corrupt activity, of course, was getting money from people like Silvio Berlusconi. So uh, here the, there's a handshake somewhere down here and this, and this handshake is important for the future of Italian politics. Uh, during his time in office, of course, uh, Berlusconi was sued numerous times by the state for fraud uh, for a whole range of uh, uh, activities, including um, uh, soliciting underage prostitutes. Uh, here, this is a cartoon where he's uh, uh, 
drawing attention to the fact that on the walls of every courtroom in Italy is the phrase, la legge è uguale per tutti, the law is equal for all, which of course was exactly what Berlusconi didn't want to be the case. So he's drawing attention to this and he's saying they're subversives uh, for, in a sense, uh, taking that too seriously. In 1994, this is the map, uh, the red on this map is of the left, the political left, the opposition to Berlusconi. The light blue on this map is where Berlusconi won, where Forza Italia got most of the seats, uh, most of the uh, votes for the Chamber of Deputies, which is the lower house of the Italian parliament. Um, and the dark blue is where he was in alliance with, uh, with Alianza Nazionale. And then the green areas in the north are those for the Northern League, which is a regionalist party devoted to the interests of Northern Italy. Um, and you can see here where he did well. He did well around Milan, uh, here, and particularly uh, in the tip of Calabria <laughs> and uh, Sicily. If you remember one of the earlier maps, you can begin to understand what was going on there, the map of corruption and organized crime. Um, and then... Uh, Michael Shin and I published a book about Berlusconi called Berlusconi's Italy, and, and which argues very much that he was a cross-regional coalition builder. And that was more important than his role as a media baron in creating, uh, in making him, in a sense, prime minister on so many occasions. These are the results for the three major political formations in 2008, which is really uh, Berlusconi's last hurrah. Uh, the Partito Democratico here on the left, you can see very heavily uh, uh, embedded in central Italy and to a certain extent in some parts of the south. Uh, this is where now uh, Berlusconi's party is strong, really in the south, a little bit in the north, but mainly down in here. And this is the Northern League uh, over here, uh, obviously mainly in northern Italy, not being popular uh, anywhere else. And these are quartiles showing the levels of support across the country. So incredibly geographically variable. No real national uh, pattern here or any kind of national average. Uh, following the, the demise of, um, of, of Berlusconi, really, uh, as a result of a lot of scandals, the most well-known one, of course, uh, is the Bunga Bunga, scandal involving uh, <clears throat> what Berlusconi called elegant dinners, but which seemed more like strip shows at his villa outside of, of, of Milan, and, and, a, and, a, and a whole host of other uh, problems that uh, he had uh, by 2010, 2011. He increasingly, increasingly was replaced as a kind of an outsider, as someone wanting to push Italian politics in a different direction by this guy, guy from Genoa, from uh, in northern Italy, a quite famous uh, comedian uh, in Italy called Beppe Grillo. And Grillo started out on the internet uh, with, a, with his uh, collaborator uh, using a blog and social media to create what be was named by him and his cohorts several years later, uh, the Movimento Cinque Stelle. And this was based around, it sounds almost like an ecology or a green party, safeguarding water and the environment, expanding public transport and internet, internet access, and sustainable development. But in fact, over time, it's tended to become more and more an anti-political establishment or anti-caste, political caste as they show it, not very different from 
something in, in the recent uh, American presidential election. Um, uh, uh, organizing public rallies, often on the basis of drawing people in through social media, um, uh, through his online blog. Uh, what he called, and it's a really quite rude word in Italian, vaffanculo days, uh, directed towards uh, politician, other politicians. So a very kind of popular vulgarity was an important part of his appeal. Angry tirades against politicians. And movement members, this is an interesting thing, were banned from appearing on television, including Greenlow himself. Um, and since the 2013 election, when the, this movimento did quite well, uh, deputies and senators have been expelled using online voting, uh, you know, which is rather like on, online polling, you know, not very, not very reliable. So who voted for Grillo then? Well, in 2013, two voters out of five voted for a party different from the one that they chose in 2008. So uh, there's a, like it here and other parts of the world, a very high degree of dissatisfaction uh, with existing political parties. And Grillo has really taken advantage of this. This is the same cartoonist again. This is at the top, it's called Festa della Dem uh, Democrazia, the uh, Festival of Democracy. Uh, so we have Bersani here, who was the leader of the Partito Democratico on the, on the left, saying uh, fascist of the web, you know, kind of internet fascist. <clears throat> and then uh, Grillo, the guy who looks like Karl Marx on here, uh, uh, is pointing at him and saying, uh, failure, friend of Piduisti. These are, this is like a uh, really like the, the, the deep state, you know, the people, you know, behind things, you know, uh, named after a, a Masonic lodge called uh, Propaganda Due, which was important politically in Italy in the 1970s and 1980s. And then these two innocent people in the middle are saying uh, a, a real pass, uh, a, a true pass forward, uh, Grillo and Bersani are, are, are engaged in a dialogue. <laughs> but in, uh, anything, anything but. Uh, a lot of uh, research has been done on the Movimento Cinque Stelle um, in terms of the direct impact of the internet on the outcome of, uh, particularly of the 2013 election. And the consensus so far is that in fact the party did very well in precisely the parts of Italy that, that are least connected to the internet. So it's, it's almost like uh, the reverse of what you would have expected. So in metropolitan areas, it didn't do so well, particularly in Milan. Uh, it did better on the periphery of Rome than in the center of the city. And then it did very well in southern Italy and in some of the, as we'll see in a minute, the marginal coastal areas, uh, the east coast of, of Sicily. But it has a very heterogeneous electorate with respect to census characteristics, but is in fact really quite localized. You can see here... The yellow on the map here is where the Movimento Cinque Stelle did well in uh, 2013, which was the last uh, parliamentary election, in, uh, national parliamentary election in Italy. So you can see it's really quite scattered. These are largely rural, rural areas, with the exception maybe of Palermo there and, and Cagliari here. Uh, Grillo himself is from uh, Genoa, so that there's a bit of a friends and neighbors effect maybe there. And then in the Veneto here. And partly it's because of the demise of alternatives, particularly interestingly on the, on the center right. 
So here's a movement that sounds like it's on the left. I mean, ecology, green, and so on. But, it, but in many ways, it's, a lot of its voters are people who historically uh, were on the center right. And you can see here a really interesting, this is a cartogram again, weighted by population. Um, so the big, this is Milan here, province of Milan. And you can see the five-star movement didn't do that well there. It didn't do very well at all in central Italy, except in, uh, in Lucca, uh, one of the provinces which has historically been a rather more right-wing part of central Italy, did well in the periphery of Rome, and then, you know, really did well down here and up in here. And a lot of this seems to be like protest voting. There's some evidence, too, from surveys that uh, lots of elderly people voted for the five-star movement down here, most of whom have absolutely no internet access whatsoever. Um, and partly of the appeal of the Movimento Cinque Stelle, or the five-star movement, is based, in a sense, on trying to reestablish politics at the local level. And in fact, recently they've met with some success electing mayors in both Turin in northern Italy and the mayor, current mayor of Rome, even though she's faced with uh, serious political difficulties. But Roberto Biorcio is one of the students of, uh, of, the, uh, of uh, the Movimento, has said that it's in fact moving from the web to the territory. It's moving, in a sense, off the web and, and increasingly grounding itself in political, in particular places. So to finish up, because I'm really over time here, uh, we can, even though we might, uh, this is the man who screwed an entire country. This is the cover from the Economist magazine, of course, about Silvio Berlusconi. Uh, we can maybe all agree on that, but how he came to screw Italy is what interests me. It's not so much that he did in the end, it's how he managed to put together this coalition of people um, and, and a coalition of different political parties in different parts of the country. And now with uh, Beppe Grillo, we see a very different kind of movement emerging, which in its turn is also grounding itself in particular places. Of course, this is a disclaimer that I have to, uh, that I have to, to put in now at the close of this, uh, about, particularly about Berlusconi. I don't want him suing, suing me if he discovers, because he's also very litigious. Um, you might very well think that, but I couldn't possibly comment, which of course is from the absolutely best version of uh, House of Cards. So uh, by way of some conclusions, a placeless politics in, in which mass communication and social media replace face-to-face -face social interaction and the, and the framing of issues through the lens of local regional common sense has not yet happened. I mean, maybe it could, but it certainly doesn't seem to have yet uh, if we look either at the United States or as I've tried to do more, in more detail in Italy. But we have trouble thinking about politics other than in purely national terms, in national averages, national trends. Part of this, I think, is that we confuse explanation with prediction. Like the TV networks are so obsessed with the campaigns as horse races. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? So predicting outcomes tends to get a lot more energy than in a sense explaining why the outcome after the effect, after the fact was the way it was. And I don't see prediction and explanation as being the same things at all, even though I think that's quite common in some fields. But I think what's at worth work here and, and lurks behind this failure to try and see scales as 
interacting with one another rather than being independent is what we can call methodological nationalism, which I think has been very, very powerful within what we can call the academic bubble. You know, rather than getting out there and actually talking to people and finding what's kind of going on, we're always looking for national trends and then trying to find national causes or a smoking gun cause, the one cause that explains everything. And we want to do it quickly. We don't want to do it on the basis of having to spend a lot of time grubbing around in lots of different places. But the alternative to this, I think, is to make use of geography as a strategy almost by thinking with places instead of, or, of, of ignoring or dismissing it. Thank you. <clears throat> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.